Uncle John CPA. I'm coming up pretty high on the Google search, and uh, my number is 895-3353. I offer a free initial consultation. Might be over the phone, might be in person, depending on what we need, but I'm always happy to help. I've actually been in this business now for just about 40 years, so I've almost seen it all, but I'm sure you'll have something new for me. So today is very interesting for me because I've got a guest today that's a very entertaining, smart guy. He's been a client and a friend of mine for years, and I'm going to introduce him right now. His name is Bob Cottrell. He's a former CSUC professor, and we're going to talk about a lot of the things he does because he's a very prolific author with a lot of interesting topics. So how you doing, Bob? I'm doing well, Harold. All right. Thanks for coming. So- I just wanted to talk about now, you've been writing for quite a while, but you recently you've got a really interesting sounding book. So tell us about your latest book and we can kind of start from there. I think everybody's going to enjoy this. Uh, it's, um, the title is still in, in flux. Um, it's still germinating, the title is. And the monograph itself is a little bit, it was initially supposed to come out this summer, hopefully this fall, and it's kind of an encyclopedic look at the American left, at American radicalism. So it's radicalism on the left, not the right. Oh. And the largest focus is the 20th century all the way to the very present. So everything like Occupy Wall Street, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, uh, I take it all the way to the very, very present or very near present. Um, and it, 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 there's a little bit of earlier material, but that's kind of very much of an overview. Right. So are there roots to this latest left radicalism? Do you see patterns or where it started or something? I or? think there were and have been attempts to separate this new radicalism from earlier versions or variants. Um, as I look at American radicalism on the left, I think of largely five periods, to be honest with you. So we're kind of into the fifth of those cycles. Uh-huh. Uh, there was the pre-World War I left, so-called lyrical left. Now, were they involved like with unions or strikes yes. or something? Um, so the Socialist Party was the political wing of that movement. The lyrical left was the Greenwich Village set rooted around the masses and other publications, John Reed, Max Eastman, Floyd Dell, Crystal Eastman, and others. Um, and the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, as its members were known, Big Bill Haywood, the believers in anarcho-syndicalism, they were workers in Marxian terms who would have made up something like a lumpen proletariat. So that would have been migrant workers, tenants, uh, miners, so those was, who were doing the, the dirtiest work, the, uh, the, the work where you know, all the grit right. was really demanded physically and otherwise. Now you mentioned Greenwich Village. Was that like a kind of a hotbed for this Absolutely. Because it still is, right? It, well, yes and no. I mean, Greenwich, I think, has certainly changed. The last time I was in New York, I felt that was decidedly the case. 
But all the way back to the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, you had iconoclastic figures, rebels, cultural rebels like uh, Thomas Paine and Edgar Allan Poe showing up there, Walt Whitman later. Uh, that, that's much, much uh, earlier than the lyrical left of the early 20th century. Um, there was another great left. Uh, that first left was largely decimated by World War I, America's entrance into it. So you had re- political, cultural repression taking place on the home front. Now, why, why would they be decimated? You mean they got drafted or something? Uh, or? No. I mean, there was a conscious determination on the part of the seemingly progressive administration of Woodrow Wilson and progressive administrations at the state level and not so progressive administrations at that level, all the way down to municipalities along with extra-legal operatives, private employees who were engaged in the use of vigilantism in a determination to destroy the Wobblies, oh. to gut the Socialist Party, to go after the lyrical left. There, there were mass conspiracy trials, for example, that were carried out against the Wobblies and against the masses, Would among this others. be like big business industrialists trying yeah. to slow them down or something? Yes, maybe? yes. Um, it was a period when um, not many workers were unionized, but there was this determination on the part of the Wobblies and some more radical elements within the labor force to collectivize Mm -hmm. and to respond to the emergence of um, corporate capitalism. And um, there was a a kind of a a doubly um, put-in-place effort on the part of government operatives and business and private instrumentalities to eviscerate the left in, in right. all its facets. So the American left, as you have studied and researched, it does kind of relate to the labor side of things? Is it sort Sure. Of like I mean, that, that has long been a key component. Mm-hmm. I mean, for many years, even generations— I think the supposition of the American left, like that of the European left, similar to lefts globally, was that the working class was the essential component of radicalism. In reality, I think on the one hand, there was that sensibility that was in place. In actuality, it was often members of the intelligentsia was American intellectuals who were often leading the fight, leading the struggle, not always, but often. And that has been the case worldwide. You know, revolutions are not generally led by those at the very bottom. Right. Uh, They may be waged on behalf of the underclass or there's a rhetorical um, offering that that was so and that still is so. But in reality, it's often disaffected members even of the elite class, uh, members of the middle class who are well-educated, right? Um, professionals. I mean, often it's um, writers, it's artists, it's intellectuals, among others. Now, would that also tie in with, like, women's suffrage around sure. that time? Sure, sure. Um, the first great American left, 
put forth a lot of the same sub-movements that made up that larger movement. So you had a women's rights effort. The suffragettes were part of that. Uh, You had a a push to challenge racial restraints, although the left was not perfect in that regard. Uh, There was a determination to lift up wages for workers and to foster um, organizing efforts, as we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Uh, There was a challenge to... um, what were perceived to be warmongers, merchants of death, as they were called, those who were willing to use and uh, determined to employ the working class on behalf of its own interest. Um, So there's pacifistic, there's socialistic, there's anarchistic, there's feminist. Wow. um, Facets involved in the movements. There's a, there's, uh, an early kind of free love engagement. Oh, like the, so, hip, the hippies yeah, of the old Yeah, I days? mean, but it's it's well before the hippies. And right. again, Greenwich was right. one of the, wow. you know, um, geographical touchstones, cornerstones. It, it's interesting that time frame also had the prohibition started around it did. then. It did. And it also had the income tax and the Federal Reserve. Right, so. and that's the period in, in the same fashion that Wilson was a progressive. It's the period of the progressive movement, which was an effort largely driven by middle-class actors, operatives, to ameliorate, to address the worst aspects of industrial capitalism. Like the income differential between the rich and the poor. Terrible maldistribution of wealth, income, and power. Mass exploitation of land resources and human beings. Right. And the income tax was probably thought to help towards that. Yes. As because, an equalizer. Because it had a progressivity built into it, meaning that as small as the rate levels were, I think initially yeah. one to six percent. But they were still higher for the higher exactly, income. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like the idea was have. the more money you made, the higher percentage you paid at. Right. Right. So that's all part of the whole progressive left you call it or well it's the progressive movement and the progressive movement you know it veered for from figures like teddy roosevelt who in some ways was really rooted more a little bit right of center depending on what particular issue certainly in foreign policy matters right to individuals like bob la follette fighting bob the i heard the name yeah long time did he run against people and senator and, and governor from wisconsin who did run as a presidential candidate? Um, Is he the one sought who... the sought the presidency in 1912, and then again as a progressive party candidate in 1924? Is he the one that got screwed up by Teddy going bull moose party? Somebody, got yeah, to some split extent, yeah. I think. But yeah. by then, uh, his um, third party effort, fourth party effort. Uh, and certainly his effort within the Republican ranks was already dissipated. So he would be considered a kind of a leftist He was on the left side of the progressive movement, oh. yes. And then further left of him would, would have been individuals like the anarchist Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, um, socialists like Eugene Debs, a believer in melding together democracy and socialism, right. and, and then the cultural radicals. Now, the was, Reeds, the Randolph Bournes, and others. I was curious, are you aware of 
I don't know the exact quote, but are you aware of a quote Woodrow Wilson made, like on his deathbed, where he regretted what he had done with like World War One and stuff? Um, Have you heard of that? Or that may be apocryphal. I don't know. Yeah, it's that... just something I remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember him saying, "I'm not sure I did the right thing." Meaning... And all of those crazy things, like he felt guilty. I think. Regarding like World War One and, uh, you know, death I, and I would stuff. find that hard to believe. Yeah, I think I'm not sure. He I just... he was imbued with the sense of his own self righteousness, and he was a Princeton University president, wasn't he, or dean or something? What became Princeton University? Right. He was a faculty member. He was a professor, and he became president of the college. Yes, he had been the president at. Uh, excuse me, he had been a professor at uh, the all-women's college, Bryn Mawr, outside oh. of Philadelphia earlier. Wow. Which is intriguing to me because my daughter went. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to throw that in. All right. <laughs> so uh, now that book is in the process of being published this summer. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's still, as I put it, germinating. Because oh, you're, I'm you're waiting. not finished. I'm, no, I'm pretty much finished, and it's... Yeah, I've been finished for some time, although I, I still keep tweaking it as things are happening. Right. Out in the hustings. Uh, but I'm waiting, um, I guess, word from my, my editor. Oh, okay. So, when it's lined up at the runway. Okay. Yeah. What do you see as the current radical left? What's your, what's your take on what's going on? I, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, there are some similarities you know, if regarding issues, women's rights, a determination for personal empowerment, personal liberation, concerns about corporate wealth, um, fears about maldistribution, and deserved f- fears at that, maldistribution of wealth, income, and power, um, grave concerns about America's role in global affairs. Right. So lots of similarity, similarities are in place. Um, I ticked off earlier a few of the, the movements that have arisen in the last, oh, I don't know, six, eight years. Right. And they still keep cropping up all the time. Right. And as they do, I just keep working on my manuscript just a little bit more. Right. <laughs> I know that. Making o- it as timely as possible. Like that <laughs> Occupy thing, that was Getting headlines yes. quite a bit. What about four or five years ago? It was. It was more, almost a decade ago Hasn't now. Been that long yeah, ago. yeah. I know that the whole income inequality thing. I think has gotten worse lately. We're coming up on that first break. Stay tuned. We got a lot more good information coming. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. We'll be right back. This is Andrew Palmquist, General Manager here at KKXX Life Radio. It's our vision and our passion to continue to expand the message of the gospel by building our station. For the last few years, we've been working to get a power increase on our FM station, and we're preparing to file that paperwork with the FCC. It'll take them between three and six months to grant our application. And now we're just trying to raise the funds to build the antenna. If you'd like to help, you can go to our website at kkxx.net, and you can either Either join as a monthly partner or give a one-time donation towards this project. Or if it's easier for you to send a check in the mail, our mailing address is 1363 Longfellow Avenue, Chico, California, 95926. Again, that's 1363 Longfellow Avenue, 
Chico, California, 95926. And we're hoping to motivate between 20 and 30 listeners to become regular supporters of the station. We have a unique opportunity to continue to grow our signal. Two Nicks. That's right, double Nicks. Nick Guy, Private Eye, and Mr. Nick of We Kids. Must be true. Saturday mornings between 9 and 10 here on KK Nick Snacks. This is Buzz Beatty. If it's 2.30, it's your home today on KKXX Life Radio. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here with Bob Cottrell. I wanted to talk a little bit about your career at Chico State. Uh, you were a professor for quite a while since I've known you, and that's been a decent amount of time. So when did you start at Chico? How did that all evolve? Uh, 1984 in the fall, 35 years ago. Wow. So I've been a professor of history and American studies uh, throughout that three and a half decade span of time, I taught 30, 35 different courses. Some of them were iterations of the same course. Was it a lot of U.S. history or world? Um, or? Mostly U.S., but I also taught world history. I actually taught in the beginning a couple of, uh, actually a, a number of courses on Latin American history. Um, I filled in for a colleague who was ill at one point and took over his Asian history courses. Um, I did a class for a quarter of a century on the Vietnam War. Um, like so my approach was fairly sweeping. Was that like an analysis of the Vietnam War or just the history? It of was it both. Or? It was both. And um, I tried to present things in a very nuanced manner and, like both sides kind well, of Well, I don't I mean, know if you would say both device, sides. It's a divisive war. Yeah. I mean, I, I, on, on evaluations, I would ha- often have students indicate that they didn't have a clue what, what my own personal beliefs were. That's which probably was, good which when was you're a fine, professor. Yeah. Which was fine. I mean, there's some things I think that um, one has to indicate if one has a moral compass if you're talking about the Holocaust, if you're talking about slavery, I don't know how you can avoid. Right, having feelings. Right, right, right. right. And it's not like I didn't have very strong feelings about the Vietnam War, but given the fact that, especially when I first started teaching it, because I created the course at Chico State, um, I was concerned about students who had loved ones who had been in the war, mm-hmm. maybe hadn't returned from the war. I had a number of vets the first several years who took the course, and they were great. Yeah. 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 I had uh, ROTC cadets taking the course. Uh, Chico State used to have an ROTC program, and then it was pushed out, which I actually thought was unfortunate because I thought those uh, young people were getting exposure to – Different ideas. Right, right. Well, I, a couple things that come to mind for me on the Vietnam War, my brother was just old enough to be part of the final draft 
kick. Right. And he luckily didn't get a he got a good number and he didn't get drafted. Right. But my mom, when we were little, would was constantly saying, If they pick you, we're going to Canada. That was our that was our household. That she wasn't was, gonna let us go. That was one uh determination certainly of thousands of families. Yeah. And there were those who went underground, those there were those who went to prison. Um there were those who just Slipped through the cracks. Right. Uh, later in the war, uh, late in the war, places like Oakland, um, good portions of the draft were, were in some ways impossible to, to enforce. Right. Because the refusal rate or the failure to show up rate reached 25% or worse. Well, when I worked for my dad in Oakland, which would have been uh, after I graduated in the early 80s, one man I ran into was about 10 years older than me, and we mm-hmm. were talking, and he grew up in a kind of a rough Oakland neighborhood. And he was saying, yeah, everybody got drafted from that zip code. It was like, it was I, th- I believe it was quite a minority neighborhood. Was he African-American? No, he was a white guy. He was a white guy. But he was saying his whole neighborhood got drafted. Yeah. And it, well, he again, was indicating it was a little bit racist, but it, I don't Well, know. There, there was that in play for the first part of the war, uh, or the extended period of what was known as America's War, the American War. And by that I mean from 1965, when the first draftees went to Vietnam, until 67 into 68, the the rate of minority participation in the war, particularly in combat units, right. was, was quite high. Right. And with pressure brought to bear, that was reduce that rate was reduced to kind of the general rate more like a population right right like it probably should be yeah on a more equitable basis but the first two or three years of the war not at all so it was not just uh, the combatants but obviously those who came back in body bags right right yeah well that now you've been a prolific author ever since i've known you you've probably had quite a few books published over the years i don't know how many but have you ever put your toes in the water for fiction writing, or have you always been um, history? I, I, I've thought about uh, writing a novel, and I've been plotting one or hoping to write one from the time I was at least 19. Oh. I just have opted for the nonfiction route. I still have aspirations along those lines. Would it be uh, maybe a- I'll come back and talk to you. When I get deeper into that, would it be <laughs> historical fiction? Would you probably set it somewhere in, in some ways? You have I don't idea. want to give too much. All right, right. <laughs> I, I won't ask for any secrets of where you want to set that. I always thought that would be interesting. <laughs> now you also have a love for. I'm not sure if you're a all around sports nut, but you love pretty baseball. much. You like them all. Well, yeah. You like basketball? Sure. Did you like? I like it the, better when the Warriors you, are winning. I was going to say, did you enjoy that <laughs> game last night? Did you get a chance? Uh, I followed it on the computer more yeah, than yeah. It was, on television. It was interesting. I, I just want to keep it going so I can watch more games. Yeah, yeah. They might not win every year, but yeah. that's okay. So how did you get this love of baseball? Did you grow up I played playing? baseball yeah. when I was younger, and, you know, I played sports year-round. I grew up in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So the weather was um, both good and bad for that. I mean, it was often hot and humid, but one could go out and play – Baseball almost year-round, mm-hmm. football 
There were basketball courts. I played tennis. I golfed. Swam during the summer, especially. Did you do high school sports? Were you on a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So the, did baseball catch up with you when you became a writer? And you were, I mean, I know you've written about baseball a decent amount. Um, what do you find fascinating about it? It was my first love, you know, my first love of sports. Was, is it the people you're interested yeah, in? Yeah, I mean, I think I had heroes. Um, I identified with some of the players, and um, I had different favorites, favorite players and favorite teams over the years because San Antonio didn't have a major league team. It had a minor league team, and I only got to one minor league game while I was there as a, as a, um, as a boy. Um, but baseball was the national pastime yeah. when I was growing up, the 50s and the 1960s. So it was pretty natural that I was drawn to it. I mean, I, I, I watched a lot of, you know, football, basketball. Right. I watched the Olympics. Right. Um, I remember television being a factor. I watched the... Um, the 1958 championship game between the Colts and the Giants, the overtime game. Oh, wow. Johnny Unitas oh, yeah. and the Colts won 23-17 to 17 in overtime. Alan Amici scored from the one-yard line. <laughs> and, and then that next summer, my favorite team, the Braves, competed with the Dodgers for the National League pennant, lost out in the playoffs. And my favorite player was on the Braves at the time, uh, third baseman Eddie Matthews, who was oh. the home run champion. Oh, was he a, before Hank Aaron? He was the. Uh, they played guy? together. He was there with the Braves a little bit earlier. Was he ahead of Aaron? At he one was point? initially. He was a little older then. He was a little bit older, and he didn't stay in the same kind of uh, condition that Aaron did. Now, I, it, I, I think Matthews was like Mickey Mantle. I think they were both very hard living. Now, was Hard he a, drinking. Is he an African-American? No. Oh, no. no. Okay. No. One thing I've noticed in baseball lately is I watch some, and I enjoy watching it. I don't follow it too close. I've heard people talk about this, too. The African-Americans are not represented that much in no. Major League Baseball no. anymore? No, not, a, not a lot, at all. There's a lot of Dominicans and yes. Latin types. Yes. yes. And then there's the regular yes. American. I mean, the percentage of... of um, Major leaguers from the Dominican Republic alone is, is kind of startling. Right. And uh, the ranks of Major League uh, all uh, teams um, really jumped the, the number of African Americans from Jackie through the 60s. Right. And then it began to level off, and it is just plummeted right. markedly. We'll be right back on Business Buzz. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Please make sure to support the ministry work of David Hawking and all the other wonderful ministries that allow us to spread the good news of Christ here on the North Valley's home for Christian talk, KKXX 930. In this age of ear-tickling, where are we to turn to hear the word? This is Pastor Greg Lundstedt from Equipping the Saints Radio, and I would like to invite you to tune in to Equipping the Saints to hear the uncompromising preaching and teaching of God's Word on this station. Look us up on the web at www.etsradio.org. We look forward to our time in the Word together. Pastor Greg Lundstedt, 
and Equipping the Saints Radio. Weeknights at 6.30 here on KKXX. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. To buy your home, you became a house-hunting ace. Learned about loans, scoured neighborhoods, and asked the right questions. Now you're queen of your castle. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll feel empowered to own your retirement like you own your home. Go to aceyourretirement.org. Because when it comes to clearing financial hurdles, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here with a history expert, Bob Cottrell. He's an author. He has a lot of different topics, and we're just gonna we're gonna find out what makes his history brain tick a little bit. So, my favorite part of American history was always the Revolutionary War. What do you think of that? What's your opinion? Um, about that being yeah, your do you favorite enjoy, period. Do you, do you enjoy yeah, I mean, learning about Chico, those guys? Yeah, and stuff? I mean, Chico State has a fairly unique approach to teaching U.S. history, the survey. And that is faculty there at Chico State offer all of U.S. history in one fell swoop. So at any one time you can get no, it all. I mean, the, the, one semester you get pre-colonial history all the way to the present, if the professor or the instructor chooses to offer oh. that a sweeping an approach. And that can't go too deep because that's one semester well, for all that stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, I I feel you know I taught that course for thirty five years and I I felt I got into a good bit of depth. and now, was that, I mean, I, I emphasized intellectual history and uh, trends and mm-hmm. tendencies. Right, not just dates and numbers yeah, and names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So would that be the one that everybody would take, kind of like a mm-hmm. general ed history kind of thing? Yeah, it's a statutory requirement. Right. So if you're going to get a degree from Chico State, you have to have either taken the course at Chico State or you have to have – um, test it out. Right, or an equivalent from a right. transfer or whatever. Well, exactly, yeah. like at the JC community college level. I'm trying to remember the history that I did have from my <laughs> I think it was, at, I did one year at Cal State Hayward before I oh. came to Chico. Uh-huh. And I think it was one of those, like a Vietnam era thing, but maybe that Could have been different. Could yeah, have been different. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I, always, I was always interested in, I had like heroes when I was a kid about like Thomas Jefferson and right. Declaration of Independence, right. and then I saw that movie 1776 on an airplane one time, uh-huh. and uh, I just I have something about those guys. Whether it's true or not, I like their stories. They sound like good guys, but then you hear these, you know, then you get these reports updated about Jefferson and his slaves, and it's 
It's always the double standard. Well, I mean, I'm, there's always bad things, too, you learn. They were complex individuals, as all human beings are. Um, they were subscribers to Jeffersonian precepts that are embedded in the Declaration of Independence. The foremost of those, the right, the duty to revolt against tyrannical authority, and the ideal of egalitarianism. All men are created equal. Right. And that didn't mean they... Um, they shared all their income. Right. Or that they didn't partake of slavery. Right. If you look at the members of the Virginia dynasty, right. a number of our early presidents mm-hmm. for them, and they were all slaveholders. Right. So they were Jeffersonians, Washingtonians, but they were also um, men of their era with all the faults and foibles there. Of, so. And that's another thing. The early presidents, I used to kind of read about them quite a bit. And what strikes me as interesting is Trump has a picture of Andrew Jackson in the White House. And he was the anti-banker guy. Right. And he was like the first populist he was the first regular guy president. The other ones were all Massachusetts and Virginia. Yes, yeah. yes. So the Adams was, family right. and the Virginia <laughs> right. dynasty. So Jackson really was sort of a, he was a war hero too. So. He was a war hero. So he was kind of like the regular guy's guy. Well, he was he was viewed as the man of the frontier. Um, he was a, um, a rather remarkable common man, but he was seen as the symbol of the age of the common, the era of the common man. And he was the individual who is associated with the furtherance of American democracy, mm-hmm. uh, but it was very limited democracy. Uh, didn't he change the voting rules? So well, that non, he didn't personally. Non-landowner, I mean, he was supervisor. Or well, he was, he, he was there He was the, the beneficiary of those changes, and he was... Um, associated with those transformations that were taking place. Because prior to that era, the 1820s or 30s, was it true that voting actually was only for landowners? Well, it depended on where you lived. Which state? That was still state It also depended on what your residence was, literally within a state. So that could alter voting voting restrictions, regulations. Sure. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, so, you know, you had a a smattering of African-Americans voting, you had a smattering of women voting, but it was a smattering only. Right. And for the most part, yes, it was white property holders. That began to change as you move from, you know, one presidential period to another. Right. And you, you, you also had a change in intellectual discourse and cultural unfolding. So... The Jeffersonian period, circa 1800, that was an age of deference. That's the way when I was teaching that course, the the survey class, that's how I would put that. And you get to the uh, Jacksonian period and you're talking about the age of egalitarianism. Right. But it's very, very incomplete equality. Right. I mean, it's, it's still incomplete today. Right. But the fact that a frontier guy won, it opened up more guys from other states. A supposed probably. frontier man. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, he wasn't formally educated. Right. You know, as his predecessors had been, he was much more rough-hewn. Um, 
he seemed to be more a man of quote the people, right? And so Didn't they forth. have a big drunken party on his inauguration. Is that a is that true? You think or is uh, that... supposedly? I yeah. mean, certainly it's the period with Martin Van Buren, who would uh, follow right uh, Jackson vice in the President, White House. Right? He would um, he served as his campaign orchestrator. Oh, and um, and. I, I think he should be credited or blamed for this democratization of the voting process that took place. More polling stations, easier access to vote, and so forth. So Van Buren had something to do with that? Had a good deal to do with it. But the whole spirit of that era, you know, the Jacksonian temper, is uh, what we ascribe to right. the changes that were taking place. Well, plus that's— Why, the- why Trump— has Jackson um, prominently displayed in the White House beats me. Well, the theory, I mean, maybe the, he likes the fact that— The, the well, theory anyway. I've read is that he might be starting to try to do something to change the Federal Reserve System. That's a theory. Um, I yeah. don't know. Because Jackson had the big yeah. fight with the central bank and all that. Yeah. Now, that time period of the 1830s, that also coincides with the whole opening of the country and the— Eminent, it, it, eminent domain and all that um, idea. It started manif- then. Manifest destiny. Yeah, we're like talking about. steamboats and... Yeah, to some extent. Know, I mean, the, Canal. the transportation revolution right. was proceeding apace throughout that era. Um, expansionism was being fostered. New states were being added to the mix. Um, all of that was taking place simultaneously. And the nation was kind of... Um, rubbing at the at the edges at the same time because you had all these seeds being planted for disunion, right? And you foremost, had, obviously, um, centered on slavery, right? And then you also had all the immigration during that time, you did. Right? the Irish and the Germans, and, and you had very mixed attitudes. Boy, this doesn't sound surprising, does it? Very mixed <laughs> attitudes towards immigrants, right? Um, on the one one hand. Business operators, entrepreneurs very much welcomed the new immigrants. Many of them were Irish. A lot of they, cheap cheap labor. Cheap labor. Right. Um, on the other hand, there is a determination to restrict immigration. There's right. nativism. And that nativism was anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, because many of the immigrants were right. Catholic. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that um, – and then the gold rush – that sure. was mid eighteen hundreds, so that sure. changed everything. With the Mexico still owned California, right? Didn't yes. they have to take it away from them? Uh, that is certainly one way the, to put it. The Bear Flag Republic, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, Mexican American War, which resulted in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, eighteen forty eight, followed five years later by the Gadsden Purchase, and you had these large, great swaths of territory being ripped away from Mexico, right. making up all or parts of some seven present states of the United like States. Like Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah. It, all, it also uh, cemented the incorporation of Texas, which had been added. Texas was an independent republic for a number of and years. And they still would like to be that, right? Well, you grew well, up there, so. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting here with a T-shirt that says Texas on it, <laughs> But you, Texas does have that spirit. You grew up there. I've I've visited there. Yeah, th- it's it's less a, so these this days. This Texas is not my the Texas I grew up. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> the Texas I grew up in was much more um, politically progressive, much so more democratic, what's more it, liberal. What's it like now? Are they more? You mean being I, more you know, conservative? It's, it's bifurcated. It's yeah, because you have Austin that's like yes. a little Chico, well, it's not right? just Austin. It's you know. Oh, Austin's like a, a mega Chico. A mega Chico's Chico. like a little tiny Austin. Oh, okay, I've never been to Austin. Austin uh, was like Chico um, two times over way back in the 60s. Oh, okay. And so you're talking about a population too. of 200,000 with 50,000 students. Okay, and I forgot it's also the capital of it's the state. It's the capital yeah. of the state. Now yeah. you're talking about a, a population right at a million and with the outlying areas much larger than okay. that. And that's so, more of the progressive side of Texas, right? But the cities, the big cities, are all Democratic now. Okay. The rural areas have flipped and become decidedly conservative. Right. Yeah. But the population's probably leaning It's tilting probably. very much in a Democratic direction. Part of the problem for Democrats is the turnout rate. So, like, Latinos who, who are disproportionately Democratic and— in Texas, they don't turn out in the same numbers they do, say, in California. Right. We're coming up on that final break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. We'll be right back. A culture war. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. There's a clear war going on in our culture right now, a war between right and wrong, truth and error. Ultimately, it's a war between God's Word and man's Word. Here's just one example. Teen Vogue is a publication aimed at young teen girls. Now, last year, it ran an article telling those girls that prostitution and other jobs like it are real work, that they're just a job like any other. Really, it's an attempt to normalize sin and sinful desires. You see, our secular culture is working hard to convince the next generation that morality is relative and that as long as something feels good to you, do it. But morality isn't determined by how we feel. God determines it. Discover biblical answers to the hot-button issues of our culture when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. One nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Fellow Americans united, we can grow strong to protect the blessings of liberty for ourselves, our children, grandchildren, and their children. Let us read and understand the life, freedom, and property-protecting principles of the Constitution and embrace the godly wisdom our founding fathers instilled in our one nation under God. America, bless God. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We've got our last segment today. I'm glad you had time to spend with us here. It's a, another beautiful Chico day. And my guest, Bob Cottrell, he's done a lot of writing. He's, as we know, he's had 35 years. He's now fully retired. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Reluctantly, I <Right>? say that. <laughs> a little bit anyway. And I wanted to find out about some of your other 
books, I mean, kind of recenter, recent ones? Uh, sure. I mean, what are your topics been lately? Uh, we talked about baseball um, and radicalism. Right. What else have you been interested in? Um, my last two published books came out in um, the first one in 2015, and the, the other one came out um, last year. Um, also dealt with radicalism to, to a large extent. The first one was on the American counterculture. Oh. And it, again, was pretty encyclopedic, going way back when all the way, you know, through the hippies uh-huh. in the 1960s and the early 70s, and then a little bit of a postscript. And the, um, the other book, which just came out last summer, is titled 1968, and it's about that, that epical year, year with that, the, the assassinations yes, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I, I co-wrote that with a, a friend of mine, and we write about the yippies and the resistance, the draft resistance and the ultra-resistance, and we write about um, the Tet Offensive and the, the horrible slangs of MLK Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. And right. we talk about Prague Spring and its um, destruction by the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, um, Chicago, and what transpired at the Democratic National Convention oh, yeah. in the streets. Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman, right. Hoffman Jerry Rubin, and the right. like. Uh, we talk about the um, Mexico City Olympics, the oh, Black yeah. Power salute bad. by Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Right. We talk about San Francisco State, where the large, longest student strike in American history began in the in the fall of 1968. Oh, wow. Went on until the uh, beginning of 1969, uh, into the spring. Um, we talk about a year that began with the hope for wholesale change ended with the election of Richard Richard Nixon, Nixon, the politics of resentment prevailing over the call for revolution. Right. And so instead of a revolution, it's sort of like a counter-revolution. I remember my mom voting for Nixon in 72 because he promised to end the war. Well, um, it did kind of end about 74. Yeah. Yeah. My my mother was a McGovern Democrat, so I can't relate to you on that in that sense. Harold. All my mom cared about was that my brother and me oh, didn't get drafted. Yeah. That, that's all that mattered. Well, she sounded like a good mom, <laughs> yeah. concerned about her son's now, well-being. So your books are available like on Amazon mm-hmm. and things like that? Sure. And how do you spell your last name? I think I know, but I don't want to get it wrong. C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L. And you, and you by, pronounced it correctly, Cottrell, okay, not Cottrell, right. like and it 99% should, of people. And it probably shows up as Robert Cottrell in, yeah. your, in your Amazon and everything. Yeah. 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 Robert, Robert Charles, Robert C. Right. So, and I guess I just got to ask, when did you, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this with you off the air or on the air, but when did you first decide you were going to be a writer? Was this like when you were a child? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure precisely when. I think I was 12, and I wrote a couple of novellas. You were asking about right, novels. Fiction, well, right. maybe I did write yeah, a couple. Yeah, you did. <laughs> but I didn't keep them. So right. unfortunately, 
I have no idea what I wrote about. You don't remember the general plot? No, no. Um, and from that point forth, I, that's really what I wanted to be. I also wanted security, so I... Well, the academic world I, sounded good? I opted for the academic route. Now, where did you do your bachelor's degree? In Austin. In Austin? Yeah. Is that University of Texas? Yes, at the University of Texas. I was just there, in fact. Um, I had a nephew who graduated this spring. Oh. And so we went back to uh, campus. A number of fam- family members are UT graduates. And we went all over the school, went to the LBJ Library. I did a, um, an hour-long interview like this one for RAG Radio, which is the um, the up-to-date version of the underground publication, the RAG, from, oh, okay. the, from the 60s. And then after so, your bachelor's there, where did you go to grad school? I, I went to uh, Oklahoma. I actually went to Santa Barbara initially, and then for familial reasons, I transferred. So you ended up with your Ph.D. in yes. Oklahoma. Yeah. University of Oklahoma. Yeah. And you probably enjoyed some football there if you were a sports fan. Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't go to any of the games. Oh, okay. I had gone to some of the UT games when I was younger. Okay. But um, As a grad student, I was, you don't have that much free time no, anyway. when I had like three jobs and right. um, personal relationship right. to deal with. And, um, and I was studying for exams when prepping for my doctoral exams. I went through like a thousand books. And, wow. So were you writing during college or was it just as a hobby I, when you played? I was, um, I published a bit when I was a graduate student. So I actually had some publications before I came out here and I, then I taught for a year full time. And um, Was Chico State your first teaching position? No, I had quite a bit of teaching experience. Oh, okay. I had taught at a community college. As an adjunct in professor, y- yes, oh, okay, and at the university, and I taught at the Army base, a graduate course in the history of education, um, and then I came out here. I probably had the equivalent five, six years full-time teaching before I came here. So with you being 35 years at Chico State professor, can you kind of say what how good of a school Chico State is because I got my degree here I mean is, is it is it pretty understood that it's a quality degree? yeah I mean, I mean I think I I think it certainly is I think my department is an excellent department um, I have a daughter who studied back east and overseas and she's presently completing a master's here and she will go on to I was going to get say, a PhD elsewhere because Chico, we don't have a doctoral program. I was going to say, but Chico does offer masters, a masters in, history. in history, which is which is really quite good. Oh, now, did I you mean, teach the masters oh, courses yeah. also? Oh yeah, you would I, teach them all, right? Sure. I mean, and, you would do masters and bachelor's courses. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in fact, I was fortunate enough the last three years, or three of the last four years, to be able to offer a grad class and. I offered a course in uh, historiography a couple times during that period, and I offered a course on um, a readings course on U.S. history from 1877 to the present. So, as a but it's an excellent faculty. As as a professor, because I've never been a professor, 
uh, well, I teach tax class at the law school, but that's not as interesting as this. You actually get to pro- propose courses and then yes. the chair and then you have a meeting and do people vote um, on it? I mean, if you Yeah, think I mean, it has to go through right. various committees. Right. Do they ever turn you down? Um, I mean, other than for time constraints, did they ever say, no, we don't want that subject? Not that I can recall. Okay. No. Are there, I are offered there any- a, a whole array of different courses. I mean, I, I offered a course on... Um, Baseball and American culture and on radicalism, on the 1960s, as I said right. before, on Vietnam. Um, Is there any unusual courses right now guys are teaching over there? Is there anything strange? Oh, I'm sure, but I'm kind of out of the That's loop. That's right, you're out I mean, of the loop. Right I did now. a, I, I created a course on American popular culture. Oh, yeah. Taught that for about 20-something years. and oh. That's, It was fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's... It's a great gig. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's some of us, I think a lot of the faculty members are um, consummate professionals. They're really dedicated to what they do. Right. To their, to their craft, to the art of teaching, to the students. Right. To the community. Yeah. Because for, for faculty, the community is, it's not just Chico State, it's, it's larger, it's statewide it's national it's even international i i i went on a number of uh trips abroad and right in that capacity right so so if you were to design a new course right now do you have any ideas if someone's listening <laughs> if someone is listening out there that uh, maybe there? i'd do it on on this latest uh unfolding with um this fifth version of an american left-wing movement in quotes oh, okay yeah maybe i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and what do you what do you what's your what's your feeling on that fifth movement what's what's happening it's Is still it just beginning yeah well it's been beginning i mean i i date it back probably to the the fight against the world trade organization seattle 1999 okay so i think we're into about the 20th year it's, okay um, is it sort of anti globalization? Yeah, anti. Yeah, but I think it's also pro humanity, and I think there's been a real determination, which is not always held constantly to. I'll admit that, but there's been a real determination to adhere to democratic precepts, which hasn't always been the case for the left. Now, what's do you follow at all the, the European problems with the yellow vest sure. and all that? Yeah. Do you see that as being related to this, or is that? I don't see the yellow vest being related. Aren't they much. more like the truck drivers? To some extent. To some extent. I mean, I there's there's movements that have taken place in Greece and Spain, right? Uh, that are more closely linked, and and uh, I, I there's these. These threads or ties between American leftists and young people elsewhere. Right. But it almost seems like in Europe those movements are almost right wing. I mean, um, they don't there seem are, real leftist. Well, there's a number of left of center movements. I mean, the the latest um, elections for the European Union resulted in a smackdown 
of the conventional parties, and we, both we, right of center and just left of center. But uh, those further to the right did well, but not as well as had been feared. And those on the left did pretty well. Oh, okay. So I know they it's, have a, mo- it's more complicated. Yeah, and, and they have a different system over there where they have to work together like – there's five parties, and they have to or have there can be ten stuff. parties. Yeah. I mean, and like have like in Israel. I mean, you know. Yeah, I can't figure. I've never learned much about European politics. Yeah, so it's it can it's be always very, confusing. And then people come up for votes of confidence, and they're gone. Like Theresa May's leaving. I think. Well, I think she's leaving before being pushed out. Right, but I mean, so that people. She wasn't really voted out, but she's been kind of pushed. I think she's out. been criticized now. As far as you know, this whole Brexit thing. It seems to me that vote was sort of a populist right-wing vote. I mean, would you call um, that? I don't know how populist it really is. I mean, I guess it's populism. I mean, it was, what, 51? It wasn't more than It's 51%. populism, but it's also populism of a pretty nefarious sort, fueled in part by Russian entanglements. Right. So there's some similarities to what has taken place here and what is occurring right, there. Right. What France, for some reason, was able to stave off we have not been able to. Britain was not able to. Now, didn't Macron have a defeat or something? Is there a new? No, nah, he's actually doing. He's still he's, in office. Yeah, he's. But he's, his party lost some seats. Yeah, or something. not terrible. Not that bad. No, okay. no. Yeah, he's he's doing okay. Yeah. He's he's it's Macron. It, yeah. it, it's interesting that you know European politics is just something I'm I'm not even that familiar. I just read now and then. And, yeah, it's you know. complex. I mean, I get a number of publications including The Guardian and mm-hmm. and it keeps me abreast to some extent, right. I admittedly. Right. And um and I you know, I it also it the New York Times other publications um keep me in the loop about global developments, right. but I'm not going to pretend that I'm versed in well, yeah. everything that's well, going on. Plus, you're not working in the history department anymore, so well, you don't need to even know this stuff. Well, I do for my own sanity. That's good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate you okay, being here. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. All right. And I'm sure the listeners enjoyed that. Go look at some of his books on Amazon. They're going to be fascinating. I will see you next time on Business Buzz. Take care. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico. This hour from townhall.com, I'm Keith Peters. Some polling places in New Hampshire are closing at this hour, while others will remain open until 8 8 p.m. Eastern time. Speaking to reporters, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders was asked if he expects a resounding victory. I'm not going to speculate. All I can say is we have worked really hard Uh, Our volunteers have done an extraordinary job, and, you know, I hope very much that we're going to win here. Heading down to South Carolina and speaking to reporters, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden was asked if he's giving up on New Hampshire. I'm not giving up on New Hampshire. Don't poke that in my face, okay, buddy? 
President Trump was noncommittal about how the New Hampshire race would finish, except to say the 2020 election year will remain compelling. We're going to have a very interesting Democrat race, and I think we're going to have a very interesting election. The World Health Organization announced an official name for the new disease caused by a new virus that emerged in China last year and has since sickened tens of thousands of people, COVID-19. At a press briefing on Tuesday, the director general of the U.N. Health Agency said it was necessary to find a name that did not refer to a geographical location, animal, individual, or group of people, but that was pronounceable and related to the disease. The new disease is caused by a coronavirus that was first identified in late 2019. Giving the Fed's semi-annual monetary report to Congress, Federal Reserve Board Chairman Jerome Powell says the U.S. economy is in good shape, suggesting no immediate change in the Fed's stance. The FOMC believes that the current stance of monetary policy will support continued economic growth, a strong labor market, and inflation returning to the committee's symmetric 2% objective. Many analysts say the Fed could keep rates unchanged this year, although some think it'll feel compelled to cut rates at least once. The Dow down a fraction, the Nasdaq rising by 10, the S&P 500 up by 5. More on these stories at townhall.com. If your family depends on your income and something happened to you, what would happen to them? You need life insurance, and SelectQuote can help you get it at a price you can afford. SelectQuote found Jacob, 40, who's in excellent health, a 10-year, $500,000 policy for only $19 a month. Not in perfect health? Don't worry. Select quote found Tanya, 40, who has type 2 diabetes, a 10-year, $500,000 policy for only $32 a month. We shop companies like Protective, Prudential, American General, and others to find you the company with the best rates. Give your family the security they need at a price you can afford. For your free quote, call 1-800-880-7474. That's 1-800-880-7474. Or go to selectquote.com. That's 1-800-880-7474. Select quote. 